These are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. The sons were born to them after the flood. The sons of Japheth, Gomer, Magog, Madai, Javan, Tubal, Meshach, and Teras. The sons of Gomer, Ashkenaz, Riphath, and Torgamah. The sons of Javan, Elisha, Tarshish, Kittim, and Dedanim. From these, the coastland people spread in their lands, each with his own language, by their clans, in their nations. The sons of Ham, Cush, Egypt, Put, and Canaan. The sons of Cush, Seba, Havila, Sabta, Raama, and Sabteca. The sons of Raama, Sheba, and Dedan. Cush fathered Nimrod. He was the first on earth to be a mighty man. He was a, a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore it's said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Akkad, and Kelna in the land of Shinar. From that land he went into Assyria and built Nineveh, Rehoboth, Ir, Kala, and Rezen. Between Nineveh and Kala, this is the great city. Egypt fathered Ludum, Anamim, Lahabim, Naphtahim, Pathrusim, Kaslahim, from whom the Philistines came, and Kaphtorim. Canaan fathered Sidon, his firstborn, and Heth, and the Jebusites, the Amorites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, the Archites, and Sinites, the Arvadites, the Zemurites, and the Hamathites. Afterward, the clans of the Canaanites dispersed. And the territory of the Canaanites extended from Sidon in the direction of Gerar as far as Gaza, and in the direction of Sodom, Gomorrah, Adma, and Zeboiim as far as Lasha. These are the sons of Ham by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. To Shem also, the father of all the children of Eber, the elder brothers of Japheth, children were born. The sons of Shem, Elam, Asher, Arpachshad, Lud, and Aram. The sons of Aram, Uz, Hul, Gether, and Mash. Arpachshad fathered Shelah, and Shelah fathered Eber. To Eber were born two sons. The name of the one was Peleg, for in his days the earth was divided, and his brother's name was Joktan. Joktan fathered Amadad, Shelaf, Hazarmaphath, Jera, Hadarim, Uzal, Dikla, Obal, Abimael, Sheba, Ophir, Havilah, and Jobab. All these were the sons of Joktan. The territory in which they lived extended from Mesha in the direction of Sephar to the hill, county, hill country of the east. These are the sons of Shem by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. These are the clans of the sons of Noah, according to their genealogies, in their nations, and from these nations, spread abroad on the earth after the flood. This is the word of God to us this morning. You can be seated. Well, this morning, again, we, we begin our dive back into Genesis. It may be um, hard for us to remember uh, what was happening when we last opened the book because it was back in May of this year and lots of water has gone under the bridge since then. We, we made note way back when that Moses was the primary author of the book of Genesis um, and the nation of Israel who was soon to enter the promised land were the recipients. So just kind of get you back into where, where we were. And so, so Moses is writing to the people of Israel on the edge of the promised land as they had just been seeing and kind of trying to decide how they were going to engage with these Canaanites in the promised land. So if you, um, 
remember some of the history, you've recalled that they have dealt with a lot of fear, uh, very real fear, very real uncertainty in the face of significant sizable opposition in the promised land. But over and above that, there was just the visual threat uh, of the spiritual life of the other nations. Uh, there were other na- ancient Near East stories that spoke very similarly to the foundations of creation and the multiplication of humans on the earth, but when they spoke of the anger of the gods against them, and they spoke of humanity being slaves of angry, vengeful gods without any sense of sin or holiness or redemption, and you might imagine that that instilled a lot of fear, not just, not just physical fear, but spiritual and emotional, psychological fear, um, because those are the stories they've heard among the nations. So here, Israel stands at the edge of the promised land, wandering around the desert for decades. Um, God had delivered them from Egypt. He had seen seen his hand. He miraculously walked them through the Red Sea, provided the miracle of manna, had given them the law and the Mount of uh, Sinai, and so much more. But still, they dealt with unbelief repeatedly. So they continued to, to disbelieve God of their, the God of their deliverance, and uh, they began to run to other gods. And, and so there was just the danger that was there, that they felt, and they were tired, and they were scared, and they were discouraged. So I hope you feel, kind of get back, getting back into the story of, of, of Moses communicating to them something that is going to strengthen them, something that is going to inform them, and this is what they get, what we just read. God was speaking through Moses specifically to strengthen their faith, that they would know him as the creator, that they would understand clearly the details of of how sin came into the world, um, into God's blessed world, and and yet even how in judgment God was and remains at work to accomplish his redemption, uh, the plan that he had set from before the foundation of the world, the unstoppable purposes to restore blessing and and real blessing to, to God's people in real history, to understand that his plan was specific to provide salvation through the one who would crush the head of the serpent, uh, from Genesis 3.15 specifically, uh, uh, the enemy of their faith, the devil that would come through the righteous genealogical uh, line that would thread itself through history. And we kind of read through chapters uh, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, and 9, and and now we're into 10, and and there's this redemptive line uh, in, in history that God is at work in, moving, and He continues to move. He ended in Genesis 9 with Cale preaching um, this, this um, if you remember Noah cursing one um, grandson, actually, and blessing uh, the others. And, and so there's a, a, a blessing on, on one and specifically going forward with him. But it, that in knowing him and knowing his sovereign and loving kingship, they would move forward in life trusting him. So they would enter the promised land trusting him, knowing him, believing him, resting in him, believing that even though all the enemies were against them, and they could see, and they knew some of them, they know all necessarily where all they came from and everything, but they, they knew their enemies, they saw their enemies, and God is honestly what he's, I think, trying to instill in them here is that I'm... I am the one who is over everything, and you can trust me, and you can walk with me as I walk with you. So this morning, we we come to another genealogy. You recall at all in our earlier sermons, there's like these breakdowns of genealogies through these first number of chapters in God's Word in in Genesis, and and they break up into sections. This section we come to is is just really a a chapter and a half, this, this genealogy, and then it moves on to 
a different person's genealogy or just a different person uh, altogether out of the line of Shem. And uh, Dan is going to preach on that in just a couple of weeks. So this week we talk about the genealogy, this genealogy, the, the, the table of nations. Next week we'll talk about the Tower of Babel and, and what was going on there and why uh, that's, that's there. And then ultimately moving into Abraham, uh, which is just a, a wonderful story. So, um, you know, one commentator said it may very well be questioned whether a man should ever preach on a, cha- a chapter such as this. Um, that, was, that was one guy. But when the, another, another guy, James Boyce, said specifically a chapter, this chapter uh, is surely one of the most interesting and important in the entire Word of God. Now, um, I'm certainly not going to make it uh, overly exciting this morning, but the Spirit will. May the Spirit work in such a way as to enliven our faith, to strengthen our faith in who God is and who we are and what His plan is for the nations and how we can join Him on mission. Um, It's the King's Movement in Real History is how I titled this sermon. This chapter we read of some history into which where the nations came from. Remember, again, it's being written with specific detail for that generation of Israelites who needed to know, who needed to understand who they were fighting against, who they were being called to take over, or who they were called to, as we'll see, move the kingdom of God into and see reconciliation with God moving through the nations. Here they are, faithful, unsure, they're, they're, they're fearful, they're unsure, they're unsteady, and Moses writes down this genealogy, and it's meant to not only, not only inform them, but to strengthen them. And it's really the two stages that we're going to go through this morning. There's, a, there's an informing of what's going on, uh, who, who these people are, why, why this direction, and then I want to specifically think about, you know, what are we meant to learn from this? So those are the two points of this sermon. Where did the nations come from? This genealogy is the most ancient record we possess of the roots of the nations. It serves as a kind of bridge between what's called prehistory, that is from Adam to Abraham, and the historical times of Abraham and his descendants, what we'll get to in just a few weeks. Um, And the rest of the book, the rest of the entire book, and the rest of history we'll we'll speak of. Um, There's been numerous critics throughout history of, of the Bible's account of the accuracy, the veracity of what we read, what we just read. Um, but uh, most Bible scholars have become convinced of its accuracy. One scholar who is not in the conservative camp whatsoever, uh, he's a biblical scholar, but he's, but he's left-leaning, he, he says it this way. He says, this chapter stands absolutely alone in ancient literature without a remote parallel even among the Greeks where we find the closest approach to a distribution of peoples in a genealogical framework. The table of nations, Genesis 10, remains an astonishingly accurate document. Now this chapter is a genealogy that's not very similar um, with other ones we've seen in Genesis. It's, uh, the, the other ones have been more like it's the father, son, father, son, father, son. This one is a um, the reality of like a, a per, a, an individual and like a, a people group. Uh, a nation. And uh, so it's specifically different, speaking about specific locations, names of tribes, names of people groups, some of which came from the historical father of that specific group. So what we come to this morning, again, is not a tracing of individual histories, but the development of nations. See, this, so there's a specific difference going on here. And, and in that, there's a purpose. 
Uh, It's not a complete list of nations, but rather one that would help Israel understand the origins of the people they already knew of and had to concern themselves with as they stood on the edge of this promised land, uh, especially in light of the blessings and curses of Noah's oracle that just took place in chapter 9. And if you have time this week, you can go back and listen to Genesis chapter 9 sermon that Cale did on like May 17th or something like that, somewhere in the middle of May. This chapter is divided between the descendants of Noah's three sons, Japheth, Ham, and Shem. Um, and this, this ordering is important to Moses as he speaks to the Israelites. Most, most scholars believe, because of other texts in Genesis, specifically that the birth order is actually the opposite of that, Shem, Ham, Japheth. Shem being the oldest, Japheth being the youngest, and Ham being in between, um, it's assumed anyway. And here in chapter 10, though, it's, it's upside down. Moses starts with Japheth, he moves to Ham, and then he wraps up with Shem. And that should cause us to ask the question, why why is that the case? Why why turn it on its head? Well, I think that I agree with commentators that said in chapter 10, Japheth's descendants are probably listed first because they were the the more kind of distant from from Israel, from that place, and, and uh, not as important. And since Shem's line will occupy the rest of the book, there was a, a better transition going from Shem into Abraham because Abraham comes from Shem's line. And it's truly as interesting as it, as it is. I mean, it really is. I, I, I downloaded this, uh, this journal article from 1981, and it's, it's like 55 pages long about the Table of Nations and just, just um, some of it's speculative, but, but a lot of it is, is accurate based on arche- um, um, archaeology and whatnot, um, uh, proving, proving God's, God's word to be true. But it's just super, super intriguing. If you have time, I'll put, I'll put links in, uh, um, in the midweek um, or in the weekly update that we send out. Um, but as interesting as it might be uh, to trace uh, these, these nations, uh, we aren't going to take time to do that this morning uh, very specifically, but we want to spend a little bit of time doing that. So it's widely accepted that those who have a European heritage have, have descended from Japheth. Uh, most of us in this room are Japhethites, and uh, I'm, I'm assuming you've never been called a Japhethite. But, uh, but, but you, most of you are, and um, uh, they moved out, of, uh, out to the east and west from the probable landing site of the, the, the Ark, uh, the Ark's landing in, in modern-day eastern Turkey. It's generally agreed among historians who study race that Gomer, Javan, and Tyrus' descendants moved into what is now Europe. So Magog and Tubal and Meshach moved north into what is now uh, Russia. They, they moved north into, towards the Black Sea and then around the Black Sea or across the Black Sea up into what is modern-day Russia. Um, Madai was the ancestor of the Medes and Persians who eventually migrated into India and on account of the linguists understand, uh, understanding, they, they, they understand uh, that as linguists that the Indo-European languages are related. They, they realized over the years that they all stemmed from a common ancestor. I read my study that the relationships of the languages in India and of Western Europe were largely unknown until the 19th century. Uh, when studies culminated in the understanding that all these languages that, that really cover 46% of the world's population established their descent from a single prehistoric language that began somewhere in Eastern Europe. This is from a secular, um, a secular book uh, that said that. Yet Genesis 10 establishes this connection uh, a few years prior to, to uh, the 19th century. 
Now Moses writes of the nations who in some cases were closer geographically to Israel, the sons of Ham, spread out primarily across Africa or towards Africa. Cush is an area that we find mentioned often in God's word and it's generally considered to be Ethiopia. There is a, a fo- or at least towards Ethiopia, the, the, there's a focus in this chapter and the next on, this, on one son of Cush. The mighty hunter named Nimrod, we, we find that, uh, that he moved east into the area that's Babylon and Nineveh, and I'll talk more about him in a moment. Uh, Mizraim is Egypt, Put probably refers to Libya. Um, there's, there's a bunch of different maps, uh, but they're all, they're all generally, generally about the same. Um, and uh, Canaan, most of us are most familiar with the many peoples that live along the, the, where Israel is currently. Um, Interestingly, while there isn't absolute certainty here, with China taking up a, a, a big part of our population on the planet, it's like, where, where do they show up at all? Um, they don't seem, there's no like, you know, and the Chinese person came from, whatever, but there are connections with, they think, uh, the Sinites in verse 17. Um, it's on account of this name still remaining in the word Sino in, refer, in reference to China. Um, so like the you know, Sino-American relationships and that, 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 kind of, that kind of thing. So there's a, a connection there. There's also a connection with the ancient group called the Hittites, um, the people who came from the son of Canaan called Heth in verse 15, who fled eastward into China uh, when their kingdom fell. Because the, the word Hittite, evidently, also has been spelled Kitai, from which linguists believe the word Cathay, or which is another designation for China, may have come from. The boundaries of Canaan, I know, I know this might see, uh, seem super dull and just like, just information, but it's like, it's, it's, it's like really, it's in, intriguing for a number of reasons and I'll get to that in just a moment. Um, Canaan's territory described in verse 19 on account of it being the specific region Israel is going to go in and conquer immediately right there. So it's like there's this, there's this land mass that, that uh, many of the tribes um, uh, bordered this land of Palestine. So why is it Moses is writing all this? He wrote it specifically, I believe, to help Israel understand, because, because, because of what I've said from Genesis 1 through to Genesis 10 and the rest of the story also, to encourage, to strengthen, to build faith, to speak about his sovereignty, his goodness, his overarching rule over all things. Um, to help Israel understand who all these people were uh, that they were at least somewhat familiar with or be intimately acquainted with, and they were who they were in relation to God's promises of blessing, or who they were in relationship to God's promises of cursing. So one son to go. <clears throat> we come to the sons of Shem. Eber is named at the head of the list. Um, and again, later, because of the word Hebrew, is thought to have come from his name. Elam was the ancestor of the Elamites who lived in southwest Mesopotamia, which is Persia. Ashur was apparently the founder of the Assyrians, although nothing is known of him. Aparkshad is a key figure in location in south Mesopotamia, as we'll see in chapters 11, 10 through 26, when we come to be introduced to the enormous biblical figure of Abraham. Abraham was from that specific line. Um, Lud is thought to be the Ludbu of the Assyrians, situated on the Tigris River. Aram is the name of the Aramean tribes, which lived on the steppes of Mesopotamia. 
Now, for what it's worth, I have to say all this information is coming from that 1981 journal. It's not like, it's not like I have that information in my head. It's, um, it was just from my study this week. It's from that specific journal. I'll link, I'll put a link. Well, actually, you have no access to it. It's a, it's a journal from, um, um, that you have to pay for. So anyway, so, uh, but that's where it came from. Um, um, there's an additional note that's always been intriguing uh, about Peleg. Um, what does it say about him? Say, during his days, the earth was divided. There's two thoughts, really, uh, on that. One is that it was during his day that, the, that the, the events of next chapter happen, where the nations are literally divided um, by language. Um, and so they're separated. Then there's the others that would believe that that's when um, the earth went from one mass to, you know, move, moved out um, and separated. Um, and there's lots of arguments for both, uh, both of those things, and who's to say it's not both of those things, but uh, the reality is, is that something happened that was pretty big during Peleg's time uh, in particular, and his name itself means divided, um, and the earth itself was divided, so whether it was divided by landmass or divided by language or both, we don't know, but the reality is that's when it happened, whatever it was that happened that divided the earth. Now. I tried to answer the question, where did the nations come from, without getting too deep into the weeds, and weeds there are. There, 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 is, there is an unending amount of books about all the details. Um, there's speculation, there's uh, volumes and journal articles and scholarly papers by the hundreds that have been written throughout the years, and especially throughout the last number of years. But in the end, what's found is what the scholar said earlier, this chapter stands absolutely alone in ancient literature, without a remote parallel, even among the Greeks, where we find the closest approach to a distribution of peoples and genealogical framework, the table of nations remains an astonishingly accurately, accurate document. Um, okay, so that aside, and again, please take time to study that, study this, to look into this yourself, and you'll find, um, I think you find great encouragement, but here's the reasons why I think you find big encouragement, the second half of the sermon. What are we meant to learn from this? First thing, um, and it's not specifically related to the specific text, but these are like, these are kind of um, uh, like things, things that I, things I kind of thought of along the way. There is one Bible, and it is remarkable and trustworthy. And Genesis 10 skipped over because it's boring reading, list of names. But the remarkable and trustworthy nature of God's Word as a history, it's, it's not a history textbook, but it is accurate historically. Um, a few examples of other tables of nations throughout the years reveal that historians were providing, albeit sometimes unknowingly, a significant verification of the accounts that we come to in Genesis 10. Some being, some being in uh, Anglo-Saxon days, others being in, in Chinese history um, books, history uh, or ge genealogical books. And certainly they weren't looking to defend the Bible, um, to, to kind of bring, bring, uh, bring help to the Bible. Things that they were discovering themselves in their own genealogical studies through their own archaeology and uh, their own place uh, has, has come alongside and verified that which Genesis 10 says. And I bring this up because the accuracy of the Bible is always under suspicion. 
Is it not always under suspicion? God's word is always under suspicion. One of the many examples was the existence of the Hittites uh, for hundreds and hundreds of years. There was no archaeological evidence of the Hittites, and most scholars, if not, I mean, unless they were just some sort of like specifically evangelical Bible scholar, they thought the Bible was nonsense because it talks so much about the Hittites. Um, so for centuries, the Bible's historical record was derided until the early 1900s. So, so like a couple thousand years, more, more than that, thousands of years, Bible derided when some ancient tablets were found in a small Turkish village. Between 1906 and 1912, many excavations ensued, and eventually five temples, a fortified tower, and numerous sculptures were unearthed, and then the supposed royal archive of the the capital city of the Hittite Empire was unearthed, where over 10,000 ancient clay tablets were discovered, and today it sits as a UNESCO World Heritage Site in Turkey. And, and each of those discoveries eventually led to the determination that modern-day Bogazkale was once the ancient capital of the Hittite Empire, and the language was an Indo-European language in particular, as they began to understand or read uh, their text and get the grammar together. Um, and more importantly, the tablets that they found reveal the chronology of the Hittites' history in the 14th to 13th centuries BC, which is when the Bible speaks of them most clearly. It's been said that the incredible discovery not only brought to life a long-lost people, but also shed new light on the Bible as a historical document, as a trust, trustworthy, verifiable historical document. One scholar stated it this way, uh, the rediscovery of this lost civilization and the revival of the language serves as a warning to those who doubt the historical accuracy of the Bible. Just because the discovery has not been made today doesn't mean that it cannot be made tomorrow. Um, I just wanted to mention that as an example, that even though um, many people throughout centuries might have what seems to be ironclad proof that the Bible has these historical and geographical errors, Time has uncovered repeatedly the historical and geographical precision of the Bible. And I state this here specifically to encourage you to trust God's Word that much more. As Moses was communicating accurately to the Israelites in that day, we are being communicated with accurately as well. This is God's Word. It is authoritative. This is, this, this is trustworthy. Even genealogy is like this. And so in the in the um, update that we send out, there'll be a couple of, uh, a couple of uh, uh, links to uh, some quick thoughts about, um, about the reliability of the Bible, and then uh, also just uh, some more extensive notes about the genealogies that go back to Noah. Let's just, let's just stop and consider this for a second. The Bible that you have in your hand um, or on your phone is God's Word. It's, it's 100% trustworthy. It's, this, is, this is how we know God. This is how we know God's will. This is, this is how we, we, get to, we get to know Him. We, we, it's not just only through the specific pages that we get to know God, but it is how He has revealed Himself to us. So, so may, we, may we lift high the Word of God by the Spirit of God, because the Spirit of God and the Word of God together work to strengthen the people of God. Absolutely trustworthy. Second thing to learn, there is one God. So there's one word, one Bible, and there is one God. And, and humanity is quick to forget Him. 
It's another thing to learn in, in this as well. On each end of chapter 10, we read the specific phrase, after the flood. See that at the beginning, see that at the end, after the flood. So after the flood, after like what is the, probably would be the most recently devastating thing that ever happened to mankind, right? To these guys, to these people. And there's just a couple of generations out. Um, certainly, they were told about it. Certainly, there was, there was ramifications that they were still feeling of it. And yet, what they did was they, they moved away. They moved away from God. They distrusted God. They, 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 you'd, you'd think that they would not want to live a life that, uh, that is somehow against that God's will and defying Him in some way without penalty. Yet, yet here we are in Genesis 10, reading a long list of nations with no real hint that any of them followed Yahweh whatsoever. If you recognize that each person mentioned in this chapter represents people groups, all of which were defying Yahweh and living for themselves and then died for the most part away from a relationship with God it can be overwhelming. There's not just one guy, it's we're talking about women, children, hundreds of people who were living in rejection to God. Certainly don't know every story there is to know, but what we do know from the stories we do know later on in God's Word and throughout history is that none of the nations were known as worshiping the one true God but had turned to other gods. And we'll see next week the gods that we're given the nations. Consider the man in the text named Nimrod for a moment, just as an example. Much could be said about Nimrod here, but let me try to quickly summarize. When we are first introduced to Nimrod, we hear that he was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Um, sounds, sounds good. Uh, he was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Um, except according to scholar Bruce Waltke, among other commentators, what it really means is that Nimrod was an absolute tyrant and that even in God's estimation, Nimrod was a mighty hunter and tyrant and a man to be greatly feared. There are a few clues that point this way. First, the term mighty one that is used a couple of times here to describe him hark back to the powerful and wicked Nephilim in Genesis 6. Nimrod seemed to be kind of like them, mighty in power, but godless as godless can be. Second, Nimrod was the founder of both Babylon and Nineveh, two, two specific places, two cities that, that were um, distinct enemies of Israel through the remainder of their, their time in, in the Old Testament. And if you trace the word Babylon throughout the entirety of the Bible, you'll find that it was the first city to become a symbolic word for a system that praises mankind and lives in absolute opposition to God oppresses mankind under tyrannical rule. As we'll see this next week in Genesis 11 at the Tower of Babel, centuries later we see it in a ruler like Nebuchadnezzar, uh, the king of Babylon, who boasted in his power on numerous occasions and, and st stood, stood on the palace uh, walls and saying, is this not great Babylon that I have made with my own hands? And, and just a short little while later, God humbled him. That's the, kind of, that's the kind of heart of Nimrod here, the, the, kind, of, the kind of example of, of, a, of a heart that is resistant to God and much more about making a name for yourself. Babylon's known throughout the Bible to be that which opposes the nations and turns people away from God. Um, 
Uh, you see that in Revelation 17 and 18, right? The Babylon, the great harlot who exalts herself against God and slaughters the people of God. So what is it we can learn? What, here, here it is. What good is it to become the founder of a great kingdom or even the little kingdom of your own life if you don't know the true and living God? Fame and power and riches and supposed success are fleeting in light of eternity. And thousands upon thousands upon thousands and hundreds of nations have done it. As you and I have also in our past. Much of the book of Ecclesiastes speaks of life and death and these kind of terms. And the author of Hebrews cuts to the chase when he says this. For us to understand that it's appointed for man to die once and after that the judgment. That we are accountable to God. He is the God of the nations. No, no matter how great we become in the eyes of men or the eyes that stare back at us from the mirror, the day comes quickly for us all when we must go meet God himself. That, that fact should help us to remember him all our days, under moments, to order our lives rightly before him. We must not forget like Nimrod did and like all these men and women and boys and girls in the vast majority of these nations seem so quick to do. Even the Israelites that came that aren't, that are just not even mentioned in this um, uh, except for except for one one man who is connected with with the Hebrews, it's all nations rejecting God, not understanding that they are going to face Him one day as the sovereign, holy Creator and King, the one for whom they exist and are accountable to. There's only one God. Uh, may we not be among those who forget him. Also, there's only one human race, and people are quick to forget that. So the point being is we all come from the same blood. Look different, speak different, act different, have different cultural mindsets, but we are one blood. There's one human race. And that race has been created in the image of God. We all come from the same family. The Apostle Paul said to the Athenians in Acts chapter 17, he said, he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. The Bible's clear that whatever your skin color, whatever your nationality, whatever your language, you can trace your ancestry back to one of the three sons of Noah, and then, of course, to Noah himself. We're all brothers and sisters, in some ways, made in the image of God, uniquely different than the created angels, uniquely different than the created angels. Humanity is one family, one blood, one race. The, the angels were not redeemed by the blood of a man, of a God-man, of Christ. The, the specific difference is that we were made specifically to become children of God through the work of the one God-man, Jesus Christ. No angel is like that. Uh, we are specifically um, different, and we're all brothers and sisters. So listen, look around. You look around the world. You look at people that you cannot stand all from the same blood, made in the image of God, in the womb, outside the womb. Throughout history, we've been so quick to divide from one another and oppress 
one another. We see it repeatedly in the Bible, and we see it repeatedly throughout history, even to this very day. The history of the human race has been one of power struggles in every level of society and among the various nations. We'll see one of the main reasons for this next week as we consider the role of false gods whom the nations were allotted to, but also just the reality that Yahweh states to Noah after the flood this specific thing in Genesis 8.21. He says, the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. A statement that the Apostle Paul picks up in Romans chapter 3 when he says there is no distinction. He's speaking about peoples. There is no distinction. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All peoples. All brothers and sisters. Humanity have fallen short of the glory of God. It's, It's not that mankind is always acting in evil ways. Certainly many good people have existed throughout history, and thankfully many good people have lifted throughout the millennia. But one thing that all people have in common is a specific despisal and distrust and disbelief of Yahweh, and then a despisal, distrust, and disbelief in His Word, specifically, and in Jesus Christ, most specifically, in whom is found the reconciliation with God that's necessary for forgiveness and eternal life. And the despisal, distrust, and disbelief reveals itself in sin, and specifically sin against one another, and pride, and and prejudice, and impatience, and selfishness, and all sorts of other ways, all things that are against God first and foremost. That's what what we see. These are not just political differences. These These are sins against humanity. We're not only connected with all peoples via our common ancestry in ancient history, but our common condition as those who have fallen short of the glory of God. No matter our country, no matter our politics, no matter our language, and because that's true, then it's also true that we all have the same need. We need to repent of our sin. Every single person on this planet needs to repent of our sin, our pride, our prejudice, our despisal, our distrust, and unbelief, and to know the forgiveness of God through Jesus Christ so that this good news of grace and reconciliation with God can truly be for the joy of all peoples, like our mission statement states. And that leads to the final piece I think we're called to learn this morning. And that is this. Uh, There's only one way of salvation. There's only one God, there's only one human race, and there's only one way of salvation, and God intends for all people to hear it. All nations, all tribes, all tongues. One commentator said, there was a world of peoples before the call of Abraham, and it is that map of peoples that concerns the God of Abraham ultimately. Out of concern for the salvation of the nations, God calls Abraham and those who come after him. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father except through me. Acts 4.12 says there is salvation in no one else, speaking of Jesus, for there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Jesus Christ and His sacrificial death on the cross is the one God's means of salvation for all peoples. He wants all to hear. For all the nations before Abraham who had never heard about God's plan of blessing the nations ultimately through Jesus Christ, Paul says this in Acts 14. He says, in past generations, He allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. 
Yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. And then a little further in Acts 17, uh, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him, yet he is actually not far from each one of us. And questions can be asked about the nations around the world who haven't heard yet about that there is a Jesus. What about them? Or, or our brothers and sisters in humanity have been given wrong information about Jesus, perhaps even a neighbor of yours today. What about them? Well, Paul states in Romans 1 that the glory of God has been made clear to them, evident to them from the foundation of the world, but they turned away from him and put their hope and trust in something else, someone else. And still, when we look back, when we consider things that, we, that are too much for us to consider specifically, what we, what we cling to is the fact that God is merciful and he, is, he will always do what's right and He will always do what's good. So when there's questions about things from pa- the past, we, we can trust that He will never be like mean-spirited or never be… Uh, he, he will just always do what's right to every single person ever born in this world. But the, the real question for us this morning is this, not, not, about, not about them, but, but what, about, what about you? What about me? What, what are we to do? We are, we are told that God is the God of the nations. God is the God over all peoples. He is the one God. This book is the one book that He is the one God. We are, we are all one people, and there is one means of salvation. What are you going to do with it? Well, first, we must all come to Christ as the one sovereign King and Savior. We must walk in a way of repentance of our own sins, turning from our despisal of God, turning from our distrust in Him, turning from our disbelief in Him and towards Him in trust and belief in the person and finished work of Jesus in their place as the one way to be reconciled to God and receive His forgiveness and to be given eternal life. This, this, is a, this is a little bit different, a little bit nuanced, because we, we know more than what the ancient Israelites were thinking. But what, what this text is, is a, is a cry for Israel to trust your God. Believe, believe in your God. Trust in Him. He, he has this. He is your God. He is going to take you to the nations. He is going to do all that He's going to do, and you can trust Him, and you can believe Him. And now, on this side of the cross, we have seen already what He has done and how He has accomplished salvation and whom we must find all of our hope and trust in. And so we believe, and then we go and we tell others. The the plan of God is to use His people to tell the message of salvation to all of our extended family across the globe. These are our brothers and sisters in humanity, and we must go and tell them specifically that if they confess with their mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in their heart that God raised Him from the dead, they will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the Scripture says, everyone who believes in Him will not be put to shame, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, between all these nations. There's no distinction, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing His riches on all who call on Him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How, how then will they call on Him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? Or how are they to preach unless they're sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. 
the gospel of Jesus Christ. And in just two weeks, we're going to see in Genesis 12 how God chose Abraham and promised to bless all nations through him and his descendants from Abraham through Isaac and Jacob. In the fullness of time, the promised Savior would come. Paul states this in Galatians 4, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons, be given the right to become a son or daughter of God. Yet yet what do we see his own people choose to do, but rather than to receive him, his own people meaning the Israelites back in the day, instead of choosing to receive and believe in him, they, they turned from him. And so the other nations were grafted into the promise, which we'll see when Dan speaks on the Abrahamic covenant It was always God's intention to save people from all nations. Noah prophesied this when he said in Genesis 9, 27, he said, May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem. The Apostle John writes in Revelation 5, 9, they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you, Jesus, to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And now you and I, we who have received the blessings of God through Abraham, are commissioned by Jesus to go and tell the good news of salvation to all peoples, the forgiveness of sins in Jesus Christ to all those who haven't heard. May, may we be those who are always quick to believe the one true sovereign, of, sovereign God of real history. And his word, which is absolutely true in every aspect. Do not, to not forget the oneness of humanity in all its colors and traditions and languages. And to be zealous to tell them of the one way of salvation through Jesus Christ for the joy of all peoples. There, there's much chatter in our day about being on the right side of history. And in its essence, history is the unfolding of God's plan from the creation of the world. As we've seen just, just, just a microcosm of in this table of nations. We've seen from the creation of the world to the fall of humanity to the redemption Jesus accomplished on the cross to the final restoration of all things in the new heaven and new earth. That, that's history. And in the end, it's only those who submit to God through faith in Jesus Christ who will find themselves on the right side of history. This is not no political talking point. This is, this is the ultimate right side of history. So which side of history will you be on? Which side of history will the Muslim neighbor you have be on? Which side of history will your unsafe child be on? Which side of history will you be on this morning? May you be on the Lord's side today and into eternity, and may each of us be among those who speak of the one way through Jesus Christ to a world in desperate need of salvation, that they might be on the right side of history on that final day. We believe that the meta-narrative of the Bible tells us that it's always been God's plan to redeem for himself a people from among the nations, for himself to dwell with forever, and his intention is for all the nations to hear. And there are many nations today that have no chance of hearing currently. There are people that are coming to this country that even though they're in this country, they still haven't heard that there is a Jesus. 
or they might know about Jesus, but they've been given wrong information about Jesus. Who's going to tell them? The Great Commission, Jesus makes it clear that he's sending us out to every nation, every people, every tribe. How, how might you and I participate in this Great Commission? For some, it means being willing to go to your brothers and sisters in the human race in an entirely foreign context, totally getting out of your comfort zone in this place, in, 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 in America, as, as, as potentially comfortable as it may be and going to a hard place where there is no preaching of Jesus, where you bring the message of Jesus. If you have questions about maybe how you might participate in that, Dan Kale or I would love to talk with you about next steps. For others, it means purposefully partnering and sending people through finances and prayer. But for 100% of us in this room, those who believe, for all of us, it means enjoying, declaring, and displaying the good news of Jesus Christ for the joy of all peoples wherever we go, in our homes, in our, in our, in our schools, in our jobs, in this, in this county, in the, in, the, in the region, in the state, in the region, in the nation. How is it that you are participating currently, and how might you grow to do so all the more in the days to come? The the one king who moves in real history is the one God for whom all humanity exists and through whom all humanity will find forgiveness, freedom, and hope eternal. This, this king moves in real history. He, he did it in ancient history, and he does so still today. And in the end, what we will all enjoy is the worship of the king, where an uncountable number of people from every tribe, every people, every language will stand before the throne and before the lamb clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. And may it be so. And may we, may we be uh, excited about participating in that mission to redeem a people from among the nations. These nations and all the nations that are in between and everything that we see around us, and may we be stoked about getting on the mission of God together.